Welcome to the second installment of The Last Optimist. I'm Mark Mills, your host. Uh, this one we're calling Ukraine, Technology and the Great Energy Reset, for perhaps very obvious reasons. And I'm not having a guest on today. We'll have a guest next time. There are some things we need to talk about with respect to what's going on in the world and the role of energy and technology uh, in the state of affairs. I mean, obviously, today it's impossible to talk about anything without considering the short and long-term implications of what's happening in the Ukraine. I, you, we all know that historians uh, will denote iconic events as pivots in history. The turning points in hindsight, you know, the rearview mirror, they always look like they suddenly appeared. But here's a truism that I think all of you know, but the pivots that seem like they're sudden always take years. Usually they take decades in the making. But once they happen, uh, rapid changes do follow in attitudes and policies. So however this grotesque conflagration in the Ukraine turns out in military and political terms, odds are it will be seen, I think, as a pivot in history for many policies. And as in the past, technology will play a critical role in framing those possibilities. So that's, that's what I want to talk about in this episode. And technology has already played a central role. I mean, let's consider... Uh, and it's not a digression, it's directly relevant to what we, what we want to talk about. Is it? Elon Musk's response to a challenge from Mikhail Fodorov, the Ukraine's vice prime minister, he tweeted a challenge uh, regarding the potential loss of internet access for the citizens of Ukraine. And Fodorov goaded Musk, really, with a tweet that said, and I quote, while you try to colonize Mars, Russia tries to occupy Ukraine, with an exclamation point, of course. It's already in the news, of course, that this is very recent history as I, as I talk now, it was within days, Elon Musk activated SpaceX's newly launched multi-satellite Starlink service and had shipped receiving terminals into Ukraine. So they had access, everybody had access, or at least people could access to the internet and free communication information to the outside world, essentially eliminating key weapon of war, which is to isolate the citizens. Uh, from communication with the outside world. And of course, that uh, very rapid, in really incredible in many ways, response from Elon Musk prompted Fedorov to tweet, you know, Starlink here, thanks, at Elon Musk. Interesting thing about this, it was, a, it was a dramatic demonstration of the power of technology, of course, and of a truth that's so often ignored in how technology advances. The ability of Elon Musk to so quickly respond within days was 20 years in the making. Uh, SpaceX was founded in no small irony exactly 20 years ago this month. That, that lesson uh, is directly relevant to the energy realities of today. And of course, nowhere is the intersection of technology and politics more critical than in energy domains. That there's very little that can be done easily or quickly to change the uh, state of affairs in the energy dependencies associated with Russia. I mean, it's, this has been is obvious to everybody that's an observer. It's been talked about frequently uh, in all the media, both in print, in the social media, television. Uh, the constraints, though, about what the Western world can do in response to the Western world's dependency on Russia's energy, their energy exports, these are, these are all the consequence of energy policies and technology choices that have been made over the past two decades. So we are where we are, and however this gets resolved in the short term, 
and it's impossible to know. It's a terrible situation, but it's not too early to begin thinking about how we should frame energy policies going forward and whether they'll, whether they'll shift. I think they should shift because of the events unfolding in Ukraine. In fact, I think it's probable, in fact, I'd be willing to take a bet that the Ukrainian crisis will lead to a kind of great reset in energy policies. But that reset's not going to happen without debate. In fact, we already know how the debate's going to be framed. It's pretty clear. Just literally days after the Russia, Russia invaded Ukraine, the European Commission's president announced, let me quote again, we are doubling down on renewables. This will increase Europe's strategic independence on energy, end quote. Okay. Now that strategy was uh, echoed almost immediately by the Biden administration. And it's already a prominent uh, feature of the claims being proffered by the advocates of the so-called energy transition. In fact, uh, just one day after Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine, the White House went ahead with a meeting that was called a roundtable on countering delayism and communicating the urgency of climate action. That's uh, consistent with what two years ago, uh, now President Biden, then a candidate promised, he said, let me quote again, we're going to get rid of fossil fuels, end quote. So everyone knows that in keeping with those promises, and of course, elections have consequences, to quote another president, uh, President Biden's administration has taken a lot of actions, widely publicized, debated, uh, to restrict, cancel, or delay hydrocarbon energy production from drilling and pipelines to export terminals, the, the usual. I don't have to dwell on the obvious that's been uh, so frequently observed in the news that following the Russian invasion, Europe's deeply dependent on Russia for natural gas, oil, and in fact, for coal. Uh, all of that's critical to the economies of the world and Europe. In fact, the countries wouldn't survive without energy. No country can. Energy is central, it's foundational. Russia is one of the world's three biggest producers of hydrocarbons, energy producers. It's kind of an exclusive club that only had two members for quite a few decades. It was OPEC and Russia. And of course, again, and it's been noted a lot in the news, the rise of America's uh, energy production to join, not only join that exclusive club, but take the pole position to become number one. It's kind of the uh, story of the, um, it's really the story of the century. I think people don't really appreciate the extent to which that increase in energy production is remarkable in historical terms. In fact, put you know to put it in context, the increase in energy production, both in its velocity and magnitude, from 2005 to about 2020 in the United States, was the biggest and fastest increase in energy production that the world has ever seen any time from any energy source anywhere in any country. It was a remarkable increase in both volume and velocity. The second biggest increase was close to that, close to the U.S. shale rise and revolution, was the expansion of what's known as the Gawar oil fields of Saudi Arabia, which began in the mid-60s. And over the 15 years following that, the expansion of those oil fields, with all the consequences everybody's aware of, was number two. But now in the debate that follows what's going on with the dependencies on Russian oil, and it's why Russian oil and gas, as of this recording, are not being sanctioned by the West because of the economic and social costs that would, would mean, not for Russia, 
but for the rest of the world. Our dependence on Russian oil and gas is unequivocally clear and a challenge. The case that's being made by the, we'll call them the energy transitionists is obvious, and even if it's simplistic. The, sort of the climate case for eliminating the use of oil, gas, and coal serves the same goal as eliminating the geopolitical dependencies on hydrocarbons. So we could distill the key question now to, really it's a technology question. And it's not about aspirations, but a technology. Is it possible to eliminate the use of oil, gas, and coal with renewables, principally wind and solar, in timeframes that are meaningful to the world? So that 20 years from now, when we're facing another crisis, we're not in the same pickle that we're in today with respect to dependencies. So here's the first fact that's very clear if you look at the history of the last decade or two. The world was well on in the way to $100 oil long before Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, the, the, the invasion accelerated the rise of oil prices as kind of the war premium, if you like. But we were on that track anyway. And even if that war ended tomorrow and peace broke out, we will still go to $100 oil in the near future because supply is lagging the expansion of demand. And that's because of the realities of what's been going on in the world for many, many decades. In fact, let's, let's frame this with respect to sort of three big, big issues, if I can. Let's look at where we are now in the so-called energy transition, then where we're going in the next couple of decades or few decades. And then of course, the most important question is what can we do now? What can we do now in response to what's become incredibly obvious because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And in, in a way, this Russian invasion is X-rayed, if you like, the energy policies of the world has launched. You hear a lot of headlines, a lot of news, a lot of talk about the fact that we're undergoing an accelerating energy transition away from hydrocarbons, away from oil, gas, and coal. Uh, it's true. There's lots, lots of activity, lots of money being spent, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars being spent, lots of increased uh, production of windmills and solar arrays and lots more electric vehicles. All that's true. But consider the facts. Here's just what you need to know. And these are just facts, not aspirations, it's not a criticism. It's just, these are just facts. Oil and natural gas and coal today supply about 84% of all of the world's energy. That share has shrunk over the last two decades, but just by two percentage points. You say that again, the oil, gas, and coal are 84% of the world's energy supply today. Two, two decades ago, they were 86%. Over those two decades, the Western governments have spent at least $5 trillion in the pursuit of everything except oil, gas, and coal production and consumption. So that's $5 trillion over two decades, and we've reduced the dependency on oil, gas, and coal by a couple of percentage points. And in fact, today, globally, burning wood still supplies civilization more energy than all of the world's solar panels combined. And in Elon Musk's domain, where he's pioneered, arguably single-handedly responsible for the revolution of electric vehicles, oil still fuels nearly 97% of all of the world's transportation. Most of the rest is not made up from EVs, it's from crop-derived liquids, alcohol, which can be put to a higher purpose, but alcohol and biodiesel. 
And electric vehicles collectively globally haven't reached a 1% share of energy used in the global transportation sector. And what's happening now, of course, uh, before the Ukraine crisis, the world was climbing out of recession from the great lockdowns and the use of energy was rising. Fossil fuel use was rising rapidly. And in fact, had already risen to, or was on track to exceeding pre-lockdown levels. And that's before global commerce fully recovered. That's before global driving fully recovered. And that's well before a full restoration of global air travel. All those domains use lots of oil and gas and coal to make electricity, just the way the world is. So even before the Ukraine incursion, before the invasion, policymakers in Europe and here were proposing to double down on anti-hydrocarbon policies, on green energy policies to accelerate the transition. A transition that's already, as I stated, perhaps obviously a little, going a little more slowly than is implied by headlines. You know, Again, the two percentage point reduction in 20 years and trillions of dollars spending. So let me, before turning to what we can do for the future, make it clear what the challenges are. And the challenges here for the future lie in sort of physics and engineering. The transition technologies, which are principally wind and solar and batteries, batteries to store electricity when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine and to make electric cars. These are very materials or minerals intensive technologies. They're not fuel intensive in the same way. Obviously they don't, they, they, they use oil, gas and coal indirectly, but they replace oil, gas and coal, but they use lots of minerals. This is not news to those in the, uh, in the uh, serious energy community or in the domains of the um, industrial community. We have to mine stuff to build things. Everything, everything that produces energy requires mining something somewhere to build machines or put differently, all energy is free. We didn't create the sun or wind. You know, humans didn't create oil, gas, or coal. But we, what we have in common with all energy sources is you have to build machines out of something you've mined. And the machines then can convert nature's energy into something useful. And then the machines wear out and we have to replace them. So in a way, there's no such thing as renewable energy because all machines, all the time, always wear out and always have to be replaced. So you're always mining. You always got to dig something else up and replace the machines. You could do some recycling, of course, but you got to dig stuff up. So the International Energy Agency, uh, a little over a year ago, uh, issued a seminal report that didn't get much attention. And they looked at the minerals requirements, the materials requirements to build the machinery for the so-called energy transition. And they concluded something that other uh, analysts have concluded, but this is again, coming from the International Energy Agency which is an advocate of the energy transition. They concluded that the critical minerals that are needed to build these machines, these are nickel and copper, cobalt, obviously lithium for lithium batteries, the rare earth elements you hear lots about, include also common elements like aluminum and, and iron ore. The supply of those minerals to achieve the energy transition goals will have to increase from 700% to 4,000%. This, this is astonishing. I mean, this, is, this would be the largest increase in the need for mining that the world has ever seen in such a short time frame. It has simply never happened. In fact, I go out on a limb and say, I don't think it will happen. I think it's the giant roadblock to the aspirations because the quantity of mining required is so astonishing and so great 
and, and as many analysts have noted, uh, the world's mining industries, who are, which are expanding, none of them, none of them have plans or finance plans or announced plans to expand the production of these minerals, but those kinds of quantities, none of them have. In fact, again, I don't think any of them can. I think the scales of expansion are, are beyond anything that's been done historically and unlikely to happen at any time that has any meaning for the coming decades. But this is, this is the rub. Uh, as we push policies to create more wind turbines and solar arrays, more electric batteries, to keep the grid running and more electric batteries for cars, the demand for those minerals will rise. These minerals were already all commodities. Now, for those of you who have done some economics 101, and you don't have to have done any economics 101, there's a very simple piece of history here that's never been violated at any time in all of economic history. If there's a commodity, remember a commodity is something that's already in large scale production and consumption. If you radically increase the consumption of a commodity, the price of the commodity goes up, not down. That's what happens, it's always happened. And we're talking again about increasing the demand and consumption of commodities by not a few percent, not by 10 or 20%, which does increase prices, but by hundreds to thousands of percents. This is, this is just inconceivable. In fact, there's no possibility that it won't lead to higher commodity mineral prices. And it already has. And that will impact the cost of the so-called transition. The machines, wind, windmills, solar panels, electric car batteries, won't get cheaper, they'll become more expensive. We know that because another simple fact that engineers know that's not in general discussion is that the cost of the raw materials, just the raw materials, constitutes about 60 to 70% of the cost to manufacture solar panels and about 60 to 70% of the cost of manufacturing a battery. The raw materials dominate. If you made the manufacturing and the labor free, in fact, that means that if raw material prices go up, the cost of the batteries and the solar panels will rise. And it's already happening. I mean, pre-Ukraine, pre, pre pre-inflation from other factors, the cost of these commodities is already rising. And in fact, the cost of lithium batteries is now going up. The cost of solar panels is up something like 50% since 2020 and wind turbines are getting more expensive because of the cost, the cost of the materials that go into their input. That, that's just indisputable, it's in the numbers. That means that any policies that accelerate, push towards more, means that you're gonna to have to spend a lot more money, not less money. And almost every single policy that's being proposed on both sides of the Atlantic to quote, accelerate the energy transition. Every one of them is predicated on the idea, the claim that wind, solar and batteries will become cheaper and not a little cheaper, but far cheaper in the future. That didn't seem likely. In fact, again, I think it's probably close to impossible. And worse than that, in terms of geopolitics, is we're, 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 in, we're mired in the problems of energy dependencies, oil, gas dependencies over Russia, mineral dependencies, the critical minerals we need, America is already extraordinarily dependent on imports for essential critical minerals. In fact, the United States imports 100% of 17 minerals that we use to build things, and over half of all the rest are imported for 28 others. And China uh, is the largest source of the majority of both essential minerals to make energy machines, as well as the chemical processing 
to turn those minerals into useful chemicals and materials. As a side note, uh, it bears noting that one of the biggest nickel mines in the world is in Northern Russia in Siberia. In fact, nickel production is critical to the energy transition goals. Nickel use itself will have to rise by nearly a thousand percent to, to uh, power or fuel, if you like, the goals for the uh, so-called energy transition. It's not that there's not lots of minerals in America's, under America's soil. We have lots of minerals. It's just the United States has been a hostile environment in which to open new mines. It takes decades to open mines here. Globally, on average, according to the IEA, to open a mine is about 16 years. So just think about that. Put those two numbers together. Think about uh, plans by 2030 or 2035, so 10 or 15 years away, to radically increase the use of EVs and wind and solar and ban hydrocarbons. That means that in those short time frame, we're going to have to increase by, again, 400% to 4,000% the production of minerals. Meanwhile, the average time it takes to open a new mine is about 16 years. So if you started today to open those new mines, it'll be, you could do the math here, 2038 before the mines even start to open, already after the date at which we're supposed to have built all these machines. There's a, just a, uh, a profoundly unrealistic, surrealistic um, aspiration attached to these kinds of energy policies, which will have dangerous consequences in the coming decades. As we're already reaping the consequences of decisions made two decades ago, uh, and we will reap the consequences of decisions we're making today on the track that we're on now. The world will use more energy in the future, not less. It was a lot more energy in the future, not just a little bit more energy in the future. I think many forecasts and forecasters are profoundly naive about the magnitude of pent up energy demand for the world. Everyone knows it's self-evident that there's billions of people in the world who are far poorer than most Europeans and most Americans. But put, think about it in, in sort of arithmetical concrete terms. I mean, 80% of the world's population has yet to take a single flight, right? And think about that. Uh, here's another fact to consider. 80% of all of air travel, air travelers, are traveling for personal reasons, not for business. So business travel is typically 15% of, of air travel. This is pre-lockdown, of course, which we'll get back to in due course. I mean, in America, there are 80 cars for every 100 citizens. There's actually more cars than there are licensed drivers. In the rest of the world, there's only five cars for every 100 citizens. As the world gets wealthier, there'll be a lot more cars, a lot more flying, be a lot more use of healthcare, more hospitals. Hospitals use incredible amounts of energy. Their energy consumption is 250% more per square foot than an average commercial building. Drug manufacturing is far more energy intensive than manufacturing cars or aircraft. It's an incredibly energy intensive industry and it's industry that we want to expand. If you think about every feature of the future, the, the information economy, the cloud itself, which of course is what my book's about, the cloud revolution, the cloud already uses twice as much electricity as the entire country of Japan does for all purposes. The cloud's expanding at an incredible, incredible pace. It takes incredible amounts of energy to launch the Starlink satellites that Elon Musk put up to give Ukraine internet access. We're going to build lots more semiconductors. The supply chain discussions about semiconductor industry have been all over the news lately. The global semiconductor industry has announced plans to build $300 billion worth of new manufacturing plants in the next few years alone. 
those manufacturing plants will use energy, mainly electricity. They'll want cheap electricity. Just those new manufacturing plants, just for semiconductors, will alone consume as much electricity as the country of Denmark. Of course, those, those are just things that we know are going to consume more energy in the future. We're going to invent new things that will require using energy, like here, robots and drones and the technologies of the metaverse and augmented reality, cryptocurrencies, quantum computers, biotechnology, everything, all kinds of things, some which we can't even imagine. But everything, it's the truism in the universe we live in, everything that is invented requires energy to produce and energy to operate. In fact, another truism, it's simply the case that entrepreneurs and inventors are far more creative at inventing ways to use energy than they are in inventing ways to produce energy. The production of energy is limited by the physics of the universe we live in. So, so where are we going? Come back to sort of a forecast and a, and a proposal. Well, we'll have, we have two camps. Again, we have the camp that says we have to get off hydrocarbons. And we have the camp that says some of them, we don't want the renewables. I think um, both are wrong. We're going to need both. This should be obvious by the magnitude of energy growth the world's facing if we have prosperity continue, technology generate prosperity. So consider the International Energy Agency's forecast. Let's just start with that as a sort of reality check. The International Energy Agency has repeatedly pointed out that all the nations of the world that signed the Paris Accords are not keeping their promises. So to keep their promises, they're going to have to double down on what they are doing now with respect to non-hydrocarbon energy, wind, solar, and batteries mainly, uh, some extent hydropower, but that's essentially a wind, solar, and battery play. In fact, the IEA's forecasts see wind, wind and solar is supplying nearly two-thirds of all net new energy over the next two decades. That's their hope and aspiration. But they want it to double down. In fact, they put out a plan last year, which you might call a quadrupling down on the energy promises to make the transition. Here's the, the single most important fact, other than then, the fact that the world's nations are not keeping their Paris promises, much less doubling down or quadrupling down. If they were to quadruple down and do what the IEA is proposing to try to affect a transition away from hydrocarbons, in the IEA's own forecast, that plan, call it the quadruple down plan, would mean but by the year 2050, 30 years from now, the world would still be using more oil, gas, and coal collectively than it did in the year 2000. That's the IEA's aggressive quadruple down plan. So you'd have to ask this question, who do you think would and should produce that energy? And that's an important question been made very obvious given what's going on in Ukraine. So what should we do now? What should we do in America? What should Europe do? Well, there's some evidence that what we should do is already taking place and already in the news today in Germany. They're already talking about delaying the shutdown of the nuclear plants, delaying the shutdown of the coal plants, expanding uh, LNG terminals so they can import LNG from the United States, from Qatar and other places other than in Russia, so they can avoid the Russian pipeline, which, as you know, all of you have probably heard by now, they've uh, canceled the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which would have doubled Russia's export capacity over the Nord Stream 1, both arithmetically and practically. So Germany is already rethinking. They're already having a kind of energy rail politique, a reset of their energy policies. 
Will the United States do the same? I, I, I hope so. Uh, what we could do uh, is uncomplicated. We don't have to uh, forswear the uh, expansion of wind, solar, and electric cars. These, we, we're going to need everything. But we could do, given the practical realities of how much oil, gas, and coal the world will continue to require, especially oil and gas, in the coming two decades. Again, I'll repeat where I started. What you deal with in the present is a consequence of what we started doing two decades ago. Two decades ago, the world monomaniacally focused on avoiding oil, gas, and coal, spent trillions of dollars, and here we are today with 84% of the world's energy supplied by oil, gas, and coal with Russia, a huge player in it and a big swing player. How do we change that going forward? Policymakers could do the obvious. This has been done before. You could convene a meeting of people who are expert in energy production, in this case, oil, the oil and gas industry. You could get the producers together and just ask them a question. What could we do now? What could we do that would make a difference now? Not in the 20-year future, but now, because we care about the now. What could we do to increase production now to offset the potential loss of energy from Russia due to the current crisis? What could we do? Ask them. They'll tell you. And you know what the answer will be. It'll be relaxing restrictions, lifting off mandates, uh, providing incentives to accelerate production. All, all, all manner of things are possible, but they're pretty limited because building infrastructure, energy and otherwise, takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. Again, it takes years and sometimes we're talking a decade or more. So then the second question we should ask in order to prepare for our future, so we're not asking again 20 years from now, what should we have done in 2022? Ask again, the energy producers of America, the companies that do the business, drill the wells, build the pipes, create the export terminals, ask them what should be done. If you like, ask for a wish list. It's not a complicated list, but it's not, and not looking for favors. In fact, that, let's be clear. It's not to ask what subsidies do we need? How much money should the taxpayers hand that industry? Keep in mind, this is an industry that for all practical purposes has faced headwinds for 20 years, not subsidies. Uh, it's faced headwinds in increased energy production in America by uh, quantities that are unprecedented in history. The question we should be asking is how can I do that again? We need to be clear on what it is we'd like to do again. Of course, let's keep in mind what the shale revolution already accomplished. The United States expansion of its oil and gas production directly led to the oversupply of oil and gas on world markets and the consequent huge drop in the prices for both for years until the latest run up. And uh, this rise uh, of the US as a major producer and exporter of crude oil, and keep in mind that was the first time the United States became a crude oil exporter for over a half a century. After uh, decades ago, Congress in its wisdom, and I use that word with caution, banned the export of a product that Americans produce and make. It'd be like banning the export of wheat. That was a uh, misguided policy from decades ago. In any case, the United States became not only the world's biggest producer of crude oil, crude oil and natural gas, but and not only became an exporter of both crude oil and has always been an exporter of refined products, gasoline and diesel fuel, but reversed course and became a major exporter of liquefied natural gas. But let me put in context 
the magnitude of that revolution so that we can frame what the future could also be. Over roughly the past decade, the increased production of energy from Americans shale, America's shale fields added 500% more energy to global energy markets than all of the increased energy production from all of the world's wind and solar farms combined. So say that again, America's oil and gas fields increased energy production over a decade, added to world's markets 500% more energy than all of the subsidized expansion of wind and solar farms combined. So the question you'd wanna ask is, could we do that again? Could we expand oil and gas production from America's energy system, from America's infrastructure, from America's entrepreneurs, public and private companies? Could we do that much again? Now, this is a technology question and it's an economics question in terms of finance, monetary question. It's not a resource question. The physical resources in the shale fields clearly exist and they've always existed. The shale revolution was not a discovery of oil and gas locked up in shale fields, but it was a technology revolution. The so-called hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling revolution combined with all the other advances that were going on contemporaneously in both the mechanical engineering, information technology domains combined to make it possible, to make it inexpensive and affordable to do that. So the, the real question going forward is to be realistic about where the world will be in supplying more energy is can, can America contribute to world markets in ways as significant as in the past? I think the answer from a resource perspective is unequivocally yes. It's also unequivocally yes from a technology perspective. We have the capacity to keep improving the technologies of oil and gas production in America. It's more of a manufacturing process now than an extraction process per se. And if you wrap your head around the fact that we produce oil and gas from shale fields with processes and and structures that more closely resemble manufacturing plants can begin to understand what the solution is to get more of it, which is you have to be friendly to the expansion of manufacturing enterprises in America. So if we want to avoid uh, a future where we're gonna head again and again towards oil over $100 a barrel, maybe $200 a barrel, we don't know where it's gonna go, but a future with cheap energy, we have to expand the supply of oil and gas. And we have to do that with new technologies and of course a political and regulatory environment that's friendly at least, uh, if not conducive to the expansion of those technologies into the industries that deploy them. So come back full circle to where, where I started um, this edition. Ukraine, the crisis in U the Ukraine has been an X-ray on the inappropriateness of the energy policies that have been in place in America for some time. You can't blame just this administration. It's been a policy to avoid incentivizing the increased production of oil and gas in America. Those policies to either avoid or actively oppose it have been in place for a very long time. And to our detriment, we need policies that encourage the production of oil and gas that are equal in enthusiasm, if you like, to the policies that encourage the production of alternatives. We, we are clearly gonna need lots more of both. If we wanna have a future that we are not looking back to our current present, 
we ask why we didn't put into place policies that could give us options for the production and supply of energy from friendly sources, we will look back at the present uh, with, um, let's say, criticism uh, from the perspective of those who will look at our policies that were put in place at a future date. So let me close on um, with Elon Musk, where I began that, you know, Elon Musk's enthusiasm for building energy technologies and transportation technologies, space and on earth both, uh, is is matched, frankly, by the enthusiasm many in the oil and gas industry have for their technology. And it's no small irony that Elon Musk's Starlink internet has had far more impact on geopolitics, frankly, than his enthusiasm for electric vehicles. Uh, We have not significantly changed the equation where we need lots of oil and gasoline. We're going to need both more batteries for electric cars in the future and more gasoline and refineries to produce gasoline to fuel not only airplanes, big trucks, but lots of cars that will use internal combustion engines for a very long time. I don't know what the resolution will be for the tragic uh, conflict in Ukraine right now. In the short term, it's gonna be very difficult to resolve that given using that old expression, the fog of war. I pray it resolves quickly with minimal carnage It is a true tragedy, but if we look at the landscape in terms of what it tells us about the future, it's clear that we need a reset in energy policy. Germany has already signaled that they recognize their mistakes. They've, to repeat it, have announced that they're gonna keep coal and nuclear plants running. They're expanding their uh, manufacturing and production of the machinery that they need for LNG imports, liquefied natural gas import terminals. They'll need suppliers of liquefied natural gas. Who better to supply that than America's producers? We're, we're the precisely uh, the kind of nation that should be supplying Europe far more energy in the future, not less energy. And they're going to need more oil and gas in the future. As a minimum, they'll need at least as much as they're consuming today, not less. So in the next edition of this podcast, I'm going to turn to some of the technologies that will make that possible that'll make it possible to unleash another shell revolution rather than just treading water where we are. In the meantime, if you like this podcast, as you know, it matters. If you vote and rate, please do. Uh, I'd appreciate your votes. And also if you wanna send me a personal note or a public note on LinkedIn or Twitter, please feel free. Until next time, this is Mark Mills signing off for The Last Optimist. Optimist.